Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, which brings us to what most fans will point to if they're asked either of the following questions. What is Stephen King's best book? And what is your favorite Stephen King book? It's also the answer to the question, if I were to bludgeon someone to death with a Stephen King book, which one should I use? You know, I'm going to cut to the chase right now, uh, rather than do my usual build-up, because I just want to start throwing flowers upon the shrine of this book, which, of course, is the post-apocalyptic epic tale of good versus evil, Stephen King's masterpiece in the eyes of many fans out there. Uh, of course, the book that I'm talking about is The Stand. So, uh, this one, guys, uh, I mean, honestly, I, I don't even know where to begin, uh, to be honest with you. I mean, during the last few King books, I I started getting some anxiety, knowing that each book I put down meant that I was one book closer to the 1990 re-release of The Stand. And why should it cause me anxiety? Well, I mean, first, uh, clearly the, the daunting length of the novel is challenging enough. It's it's like knowing that I have to scale Mount Everest all over again. I mean, for what, maybe the fifth time at this point? I mean, more importantly, it's challenging knowing that I, I need to be in my A-game, seeing as how this is King's A-game book, and it's the blueprint for the modern post-apocalyptic story, as evidenced by the, uh, anyone that sat down on Sunday night to watch The Walking Dead. Simply put, this novel means so much, uh, so, so much to Stephen King fans and to pop culture. It's a novel that, you know, while never adapted to the big screen, you know, was adapted in 1994 as a TV miniseries. Um, it has either advertently or inadvertently shaped how we tell the post-apocalyptic story. It's a novel that struck a chord in 1978, and it's one that struck a chord again in 1990, and it's one that will strike a chord in the next few years when the four-part movie will hit movie theaters. I mean, the fact that Warner Brothers first pitched the movie to, to Ben Affleck to direct who had reinvented his career as a director of Oscar award-winning movies. And that's a sign that The Stand, despite it being almost 40 years old, is just as relevant, its story just as potent as it was in 1978. It's a movie that could be made 40 years from now, which speaks to the timelessness of the story that King crafted so early in his career. Now, I had mentioned Ben Affleck, who had passed on uh, the project, and it has since fallen to Josh Boone, who convinced the studio to expand it to a four-part endeavor. And the most exciting news managed to cast probably the most buzzed-about actor right now, Academy Award-winning, True Detective starring, Oscar Award-winning, Matthew McConaughey himself, in the role of what most Stephen King fans point to as his most iconic villain of all time, the breakout star of this novel who has gone on to haunt other characters in the Dark Tower series, The Eyes of the Dragon, and Hearts in Atlantis, the one, the only, walking dude himself, the man of many aliases, who was introduced to us here and will live on in our hearts forevermore as Randall Flagg. 
I've stated in past reviews that the fact that the stand hasn't been adapted for the big screen following its release was a huge missed opportunity for the recognition of the Randall Flagg character. The characters of his first three novels were turned into horror icons. I mean, just look at it. Carrie, Barlow, and Jack Torrance, I mean, each in their own ways, staked out territory in the history of the horror genre. Stephen King's next book after The Stand continued that trend with Christopher Walken's turn as Johnny Smith in The Dead Zone, and then we have Firestarter, Cujo, the list goes on. And within that list, there is one huge notable exception, and that, of course, is The Stand. For an adaptation, Fans would have to wait until 1994, until it was adapted for television on ABC. I'm going to get to the miniseries in a later review, but in the meantime, the fact that there was never a movie when King was establishing his cinematic legacy meant that Flagg was never allowed to take the throne he so rightfully deserved. That's why the casting of Matthew McConaughey is so important. It would have to take an actor who could balance ruthlessness, insanity, and overwhelming charisma who could pull off that role. And the fact that McConaughey has been cast is one of those perfect casting moments, you know, that's just so on the nose and so right that you just, you feel like an idiot for not thinking of it first. And, okay, so I'm going to say this again and again and again. This is nothing... Nothing against Jamie Sheridan, who played Flag in a TV miniseries. I loved Jamie Sheridan's performance, and it is by far the best thing about that movie. It's just that by adapting it as a TV miniseries, it, in 1994, after it first came out, after Stephen King was first building a name for himself, it could not compare to the cinematic adaptations of Carrie, Shining, and all the others. Now, nowadays, I would argue that television is the go-to place for creative live-action endeavors, but in 1994, I mean, it, Steve, I mean, it, it, was, it was still the, the poor man's movie theater. Um, and I was just actually having a conversation with someone today. A, bu a bunch of us uh, were talking about um, the stuff, and the stand came up, and people were talking about, you know, Matthew McConaughey being cast as, as Randall Flagg, and they were really excited, and, you know, people talk about the, the, um, the miniseries, and, I, I mean, no one says it's great, no one says it's good, you know, I mean, the, the best compliment that someone gave it in the conversation was, it was all right, in, in that tone, like the, I'm trying to be nice here, so I'm not going to say what I really think about it. I'm going to kind of give it a little bit of a bump up, maybe even though it, it might not deserve it. That was the tone that it was given. That was the conversation. And, but that's the kind of conversation that I've heard again and again and again about the miniseries, which was very much of its time. And I think that for its time, it was really good television for what television miniseries were expected of in 1994. Um, but... I'm going to get to that when I get to my, my stand review. So I'll, I'll save my thoughts for that. I just, I, I really do feel as though there was a huge missed opportunity when it was not made at the time or around of its original publication. Now in my three-part review of the novel It, I mentioned that two novels are pointed out as King's best and two characters are pointed out as King's best villains. The two novels, of course, are It and The Stand. And on any given day, depending on which way the wind is blowing, if you ask me what my favorite King book is, I could tell you either one. It, I think, is the culmination of King's statement of horror, which allows The Stand to be its own thing. With this novel, he'll remind us that he's the master of horror, but this isn't a horror novel, at least not the type of horror that he'd given us so far. In fact, with The Stand, 
King might have created the popular subgenre of survival horror. Now, for me, loyal listeners will know that it was my gateway to King. Once immersed in that world, however, I began to soak up as much King as I possibly could. I don't specifically remember my reading order, but I do know that my follow-up was certainly not The Stand. Because it didn't have that cinematic adaptation that I was already familiar with, the way The Shining, Carrie, Cujo, Firestarter, Pet Cemetery had, it wasn't one that I immediately sought out. You know, and, and you know how these things go. You get interested in something, so you're not just consuming the, the product itself, but you're, you're also researching it. And this was before the days of the internet, mind you. And, and during my reading um, and research of it, I, I started um, keeping my ears open about Stephen King. And during my reading, I had begun to hear of a, a massive tale of, of good and evil in the wastelands of America. And I remember the distinct image of the re-release um, of when it came out. And I just remember seeing the ad in magazines and the newspapers, and I think there was even commercials, of what looks like a knight fighting a demon. It was an image that stuck in my head. And the fact that I kept hearing that it was the best, it was the best, it was the best. I mean, it, it really stoked my interest. The best? Even better than it? I needed to know. And then one day, while on summer vacation at the beach, the stand fell into my hands, and I experienced firsthand why it was considered the best. One by one, I fell in love with each of the characters. And King proceeded to break my heart over and over again when these characters, with whom I had just fallen in love, died. To this day, this is the beach read that has yet to be beat. I mean, just the fact that the majority of the novel takes place in the summer only serves to enhance that quality. And then, and then there's Flag. Look, I, here's the thing. This was one of the reasons I, I had talked about earlier how daunting it was knowing I was going to get to this because Flag. Flag is the glue of, of the Stephen King universe. He's the character that, I mean, he doesn't tie it all together, but he's he's that character that, that just dances around universes, and he pops up in one book, and he'll pop up in the other without any sort of rhyme or reason, no grand scheme, just to cause chaos and disrupt order and, and just steal the show. That's just what he likes to do. He likes to just kick off whatever performer is on the stage, take the microphone, bask in the spotlight and, and just be himself um and i was intimidated because he means so much and there's so much in importance around the flag character in the context of the greater stephen king works and that's really putting him within the context that that's that that's really that's that's my job when i sat down to to make this podcast so it was intimidating getting there and, and so i didn't know what else i was going to say about flag because if you've been listening to this point you've already listened to my gunslinger review my gunslinger bonus review my um eyes the eyes of the dragon review um the eyes of the dragon bonus review the uh drawing of the three review the drawing of the three bonus review all you know and i talk about flag in every one of those books so i didn't know what else to say about flag or at least i was afraid that i wasn't going to have anything else to say about flag um because like i said i, I i've I've already talked about him in this episode alone, and there's just entire bonus episodes, the ones that I've talked about, are dedicated 
to this this character. Um, but I mean, I, I still owe it to him. I, I have to talk about him a little bit more. I mean, this 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 is the guy. It's like I said, if you ask a fan what the greatest king villain is, you're gonna get one of two answers. You know, one is Pennywise, the ultimate monster. Just he is the boogeyman. He is the the creature underneath the bed. And the other is Flag, who is the embodiment of chaos. And while Pennywise might be that distillation of the monster under your bed, that 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 sum total of your childhood fears, Flag represents the fears that come with adulthood, the lawlessness of the world, the danger lurking not under your bed but just outside the system. You know, he is the personification of the darkness of the universe, the coldness of space that just presses in on every inch of the earth. I mean, he He's the other, capital O. He's the friendly stranger that lures you in with a smile and then rips out your throat with that same grin. He's the stranger you speed by as you pass on the road, the catalyst for mass hysteria. If this were written today, Flag would have whipped Occupy Wall Street into a bloodbath. The fallout from Ferguson would have become militant, and he'd watch from afar as the blood spilled into the streets and laugh as he'd move on to the next tragedy to exploit. So if Pennywise is the childhood boogeyman, Flag is the adult boogeyman. He's he's Max Cady from Cape Fear. He's a natural disaster with his faded jeans, his jean jacket, his cowboy boots. He's a twisted, nightmarish version of our image of the cowboy. Our American iconography turned against us. Flag, more than anything else about this novel, makes this a definitive American story. Despite the fact that it feels like a biblical story told in modern times, it isn't a story that could be told in Europe, South America, Asia, Africa. This is a very specific end of the world story. This isn't just the end of the world, it's the end of America. And Flag walks us through it. And with this concept, King tackles the socio-political aspects of our society in a way that he hadn't done at this point in his career. Salem's Lot was a metaphor for the outside world encroaching upon small towns, but it was still very much housed within that small town. That's as big as he got. And instead of growing bigger, for his next novel, he holed up a small family in a hotel with The Shining. You know, he didn't go bigger at that point. He went smaller. And then with his fourth book, The Stand, you know, he simply exploded his talent. This time, his canvas wasn't a small town or a haunted hotel. It was the entire country. And with the country at his disposal, he commented upon every aspect of it, from the news outlets to the government, the military, the celebrity, the youth, the elderly, the North, the Midwest, the conservative, the liberal, the pragmatic, the dreamers, the able, and the handicapped. He painted a very recognizable America in the early stages of an outbreak and removed all aspects of civilization, creating his largest sandbox yet, allowing a giant space in order for him to answer a number of what-ifs. What if a disgraced one-hit wonder found redemption in the face of the apocalypse? What if a woman discovered she was the bride of the devil? What if you dreamt of a dark man and an old woman? Who would you choose? What if that dark man provided a sense of safety, of order, of structure, and that old woman couldn't promise that? Who would you choose then? What if a deaf man's only friend in the apocalypse was mentally challenged? What would you do if everyone in the world died and you found out that you were pregnant? 
And those are just the what-ifs that start the novel. Once the flu decimates the population, King is able to explore the hardships and the dangers of a post-civilized world, and a number of other what-ifs pop up. For a guy who wrote narrowed, focused examinations of bullied schoolgirls and alcoholic fathers, The Stand is the novel that shows that King is much, much more than just a horror novelist. It's a novel that allowed him to flex his creative muscles and stands as that golden dream of every writer who lives in any of our states. That, of course, is to write the ultimate American novel. I've said before that when King passes, um, historians will cement his works and certain novels will be elevated over others. The Dark Tower, for instance, will be analyzed as a long-form look into the mind of a writer over the years who grew aware of his own voice. Carrie for the sheer fact that it was his first, Gerald's game, Dolores Claiborne, and Rose Matter for representing the female as protagonist phase of his career, It for functioning as the crescendo to his celebrity uh, status as a horror author, uh, the stretch of books from Needful Things through Desperation, which saw a spike in creativity um, and how um, just prolific he was at that time. I mean, one year saw the monthly publication of The, the, the Green Mile, um, as well as the simultaneous publication of Desperation and the Regulators. I, that's a lot. But it's probably the stand that history will point to as his greatest accomplishment. And if that's a chosen selection, I really can't argue. Clearly established settings, characters, conflicts, a biblical quest played out on a decimated American wasteland, deaths that matter, an examination on the relationship between the government and our country, of religion in our lives. It stands as a condemnation of the excess need that had taken over our country and a celebration of the spirit of the American dream as every survivor is thrust into the role of a pioneer. And of course, it has Randall Flagg. So before I get any further... In my analysis, uh, I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary so that I will have a foundation upon which I can build the rest of this episode. So, before we actually look at the, the, the summary, as I usually jump into these things, I get into the summary, I, I think that's important that we look at the inspirations from the novel and how it was written. So I'm going to lump that in as well, which also comes from Wikipedia. So, The Stand was also planned by King as an epic Lord of the Rings type story in contemporary American setting. For a long time, 10 years at least, I had wanted to write a fantasy epic like The Lord of the Rings, only with an American setting. I just couldn't figure out how to do it. Then after my wife and kids and I moved to Boulder, Colorado, I saw a 60 minute segment um, on CBW, Chemical Biological Warfare. I never forgot the gruesome footage of the test mice shuddering, convulsing, and dying, all in 20 seconds or less. That got me remembering a chemical spill in Utah, the kind that killed a bunch of sheep. These were canisters on their way to some burial ground. They fell off the truck and ruptured. I remembered a news reporter saying, if the winds had been blowing the other way, there was Salt Lake City. This incident later served as the basis of a movie called Rage, starring George C. Scott. Before it was released, I was deep into the stand, finally writing my American fantasy epic set in plague-decimated USA. Only instead of a hobbit, my hero was a Texan named Stu Redman. Instead of a dark lord, 
My villain was a ruthless drifter and supernatural madman named Randall Flagg. The land of Mordor, where the shadows lie, according to Tolkien, was played by Las Vegas. King nearly abandoned the stand due to writer's block. Eventually, he reached the conclusion that the heroes were becoming too complacent and were beginning to repeat all the same mistakes of their old society. And in an attempt to resolve this, he added the part of the storyline where Harold and Nadine uh, construct a bomb which explodes in a free zone committee meeting killing Nick Andros, Chad Norris, and Susan Stern. Later, Mother Abigail explains on her deathbed that God permitted the bombing because he was dissatisfied with the hero's focus on petty politics and not on the ultimate quest of destroying Flag. When telling this story, King sardonically observed that the bomb saved the book and that he only had to kill half of the core cast in order to do this. Okay, now I'm going to get on to the summary. Part 1, Captain Trips, June 16th to July 4th. At a remote U.S. Army base, a weaponized strain of influenza known officially as Project Blue and nicknamed Captain Trips is accidentally released. Despite an effort to put the base under lockdown, security malfunction allows a soldier, Charles Campion, to escape with his family. By the time the military tracks uh, the already deceased Campion to Texas, he has triggered a pandemic of apocalyptic proportions which eventually kills off 99.4% of the world's human population. As the pandemic intensifies, a multifaceted narrative told partly from the perspective of primary characters outlines the total breakdown and destruction of society through widespread violence, the failure of martial law to contain the outbreak, the military's increasingly violent efforts to censor information, and finally, the near extinction of mankind. The emotional toll is also dealt with, as the survivors must care for their families and friends dealing with the confusion and grief as virtually everyone they know succumbs to the flu. The expanded edition opens with the prologue titled The Circle Opens that offers greater detail into the circumstances surrounding the development of the virus and the security breach that allowed it to escape from its secret laboratory compound where it was created. Part 2, On the Border, July 5th to September 6th. Intertwining cross-country odysseys are undertaken by a small number of survivors in three parties, all drawn together by both circumstance and their shared dreams of a 108-year-old woman in Hemingford Home, Nebraska, who they see as an embodiment of good. The woman, Abigail Fremantle, better known as Mother Abigail, becomes the spiritual leader for the survivors. Mother Abigail directs them to Boulder, Colorado, where they struggle to reestablish a democracy uh, called the Free Zone. Meanwhile, another group of survivors is drawn to Las Vegas by Randall Flagg, an evil being with supernatural powers. Flagg's governance is brutally tyrannical, using gruesome methods of torture and execution to quell dissent. Flagg's group is able to quickly reorganize its society, restore power to Las Vegas, and rebuild the city with the many technical professionals who have migrated there. Flagg's group launches a weapons program searching what remains of the United States for suitable arms. Mother Abigail, feeling that she has become prideful due to her pleasure at being a public figure, disappears into the wilderness on a journey of spiritual re reconciliation. During her absence, the Free Zone's leadership committee decides to secretly send three people to Flag's territory to act as spies, Harold Lauder and Nadine Cross, who are disaffected Free Zone inhabitants tempted by Flag, stage an attack on the committee with a bomb. The explosion 
kills several people, but most of the committee members avoid the explosion thanks to Mother Abigail's timely return. However, she is dying from malnutrition. Part 3, The Stand, September 7th to January 10th. The stage is now set for the final confrontation, as Flag's group becomes aware of the threat from the free zone. There is no pitched battle, however. Instead, Mother Abigail's dying behest, four of the five surviving members of the leadership committee, Glenn Bateman, Stu Redman, Ralph Bretner, and Larry Underwood, set off on foot towards Las Vegas on an expedition to confront Flag. Stu breaks his leg en route and convinces the others to go on without him, telling them that God will provide for him if that's what's meant to happen. The remaining three are soon taken prisoner by Flagg's army. When Glenn refuses to grovel before Flagg, he is killed by Lord Hen Lloyd Henry, his second-in-command. Flagg gathers his entire collective to witness the execution of Brentner and Underwood. Moments before they are to be killed, the Trash Can Man, an insane follower of Flagg's, arrives with a stolen nuclear warhead. Flagg's magical attempt to silence a dissenter is transformed into a giant glowing hand, the Hand of God, which detonates the bomb, destroying Las Vegas and all of Flagg's followers, along with Larry and Ralph. The inhabitants of Boulder anxiously anticipate the birth of a, of a baby by Stu's love interest, Francis Goldsmith. They fear that the child may not possess an immunity to the super flu and may die, implying a permanent end to humanity. Soon after she gives birth to a live baby, Stu returns to Boulder, having been rescued by a free zone spy named Tom Cullen. The baby, Peter, manages to fight off the superflu. The original edition of the novel ends with Fran and Stu questioning whether the human race can learn from its mistakes. The answer, given in the last line, is ambiguous. I don't know. The expanded edition follows this with a brief coda called The Circle Closes, which leaves a darker impression and fits with King's ongoing Wheel of Ka theme. An amnesia-stricken flag wakes up on a beach somewhere in the South Pacific, having somehow escaped the atomic blast in Vegas by using his dark magic. There, he begins recruiting adherents among a preliterate, dark-skinned people who worship him as a deity. Prologue. The circle opens. Sally. Wake up now, Sally. With those words opens what many consider to be Stephen King's finest. These words, spoken by Charles Campion, create an immediate sense of urgency and a hook to engage us to continue reading. The hook is small, simple, but effective. Who is Sally? Who is speaking to her? And why must she wake up? More importantly, for a novel that deals with the end of the human race, which will span the entire country and will mark King's most ambitious work to date, these few words ground the novel, a truly epic novel, in the correct sense of the word, to the very relatable. While the events of the novel detail the downfall and the ultimate rebirth of civilization, King knows that if it's going to work, we have to connect. And it's here that we make that connection. With a man, frightened for his family, whose act is to save those he loves and in doing so, dooms the entire human race. This is as spring-loaded an opening as King has ever crafted, and come to think of it, will ever craft. Certain words and phrases stand out to paint a vivid scene. AWOL, I have to test the wind, the fact that he begins to cough nervously. He doesn't come right out and tell us what happened, but we know he's a soldier. 
And what happened was bad enough for him to desert his post. We have an image of soldiers remaining calm under pressure, so the fact that he's described as in a state of raw panic serves to illustrate the scope of this situation, even though the reader doesn't necessarily understand what it fully entails at that point. King slows it down enough to spell it out in broad strokes. There was an accident in the lab, and Charlie the guard managed to escape. The final sentence, which reveals that they've made it to Nevada and that Charlie was coughing steadily, is deeply ominous. Now, to begin, let's focus on the fact that the magnetic lock that was supposed to shut the, the second, um, the light turned red, and Charlie admits that it was luck that he managed to make it out. If it was designed to shut down in case of an accident, then how did it manage to malfunction? Is it simply commentary that man's hubris will be his undoing? Or was there a larger hand at play? Or was there a cosmic force that left the door open long enough in order for Charlie to flee and escape into this world, carrying upon every breath the means to bring the world to its knees? Book 1, Captain Trips, Chapter 1. Remember that, although I'm reviewing this after I've reviewed 20-something stories, uh, The Stand, upon its original publication, was the fourth release in his bibliography, right after The Shining. By the time the unabridged edition came out, it would have been easier to take for granted the, the seeming ease with which he builds his cast of characters, the various settings across the country, and the moments of conflict from the interpersonal to the apocalyptic. Since the time of the original release, I mean, King has introduced us to the, the world of gunslingers and magicians, killer cars, zombie pets, flying tractors... Interdimensional spider clowns, ghosts of authors' pen names, world-hopping adolescents, and more. Don't forget the time of the original release. King had only written novels that had taken place in localized settings with a small handful of characters. This was unlike anything that he had demonstrated so far, and yet so much of it is recognizably him. His firm grasp on character and setting is necessary in building this world. And while the opening might have been effective... This is where we really begin, in Arnett, Texas, as mosquitoes fly into the neon lights of a desolate gas station. King relies on and pushes, at the same time, his talents for setting and character, as we meet our blue-collar good old boys and our everyman, Stu Redman. I mean, just look at his name, right? He's a red-blooded American and the everyman, hence Stu Redman. King expertly introduces us to Stu only after first meeting the more extroverted Hap himself. Stu's introduction, much like Stu himself, is quieter and more nondescript. Stu, guys. Stu. Seriously. I mean, this is a novel that spans the continent and, and, and serves as the final showdown between good and evil. There aren't enough words to be said that our hero in this story is Stu. And with him being a man of few words, maybe it's better that way. With a novel like this, there's no sense in trying to write it if you're not going to have anything to say. And with Stu, King again speaks of the small town and a small town life. He writes, The marriage had been the best time and had only lasted 18 months. The womb of his young wife had borne a single dark and malignant child. That had been four years ago. Since he had thought of leaving Arnett, searching for something better, but small-town inertia held him. 
the low siren song of familiar places and familiar faces. He was well liked in Arnett, in Arnett, and Vic Palfrey had once paid him the ultimate compliment of calling him old time tough. I mean, from the get-go, Stu is characterized by his tragic life. And soon we'll see the tragedies are simply accepted as part of life, something to mourn and then move on from. The trials, the responsibilities, the sacrifices, the losses are almost trivialized by the fact that he isn't broken by them and instead shows his bottomless well of adaptability and willpower to push in even the darkest of circumstances. I mean, so far King has told us these things, but we are soon shown his ability to remain calm as he spots Charlie's car veering towards the gas station and knowing there's about to be an accident, gently shunts off the pumps as the car slams into them. And I really need to make the note that King does not waste any time. In fact, for a novel that's over a thousand pages, there's very little fat to this story. Now, I mean, there's some, there's some, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'll get into that later, but compare this to, say, the Tommyknockers, where the first 50 pages were comprised of one character walking around the woods feeling sorry for herself. Here, we have a four-page escape in the dead of night, followed by a car crash, and our first reveal of the frightening death that will soon infect the population. King knows that he has to put it all up front to show us exactly what we're dealing with. There will be time for mysteries, prophetic dreams, double crosses, but now is not the time. Now is the time to show our characters and the readers what exactly they're dealing with. What is it that caused the red light to go on? What it was that made Charlie run so fast? King knows that while he might you know, craft with this novel a post-apocalyptic adventure fantasy, he has to horrify us with the death that will quickly sweep over the country. Vic and Stu looked into the car for some time, looked at each other, and then looked back in. On the passenger side was a young woman, her shift dress hiked up her th high on her thighs. Leaning against her was a boy or girl about three years old. They were both dead. Their necks had swelled up like inner tubes, and the flesh there was a purple-black color like a bruise. The flesh was puffed up under their eyes, too. They looked, Vic later said, like those baseball players who put lamp black under their eyes to cut the glare. Their eyes bulged sightlessly. The one was holding the child's hand. Thick mucus had run from their noses and was now clotted there. Flies buzzed around them, lighting in the mucus, crawling in and out of their open mouths. Stu had been in the war, but he had never seen anything so terribly pitiful as this. His eyes were constantly drawn back to those linked hands. Chapter 2 Here we meet Franny, who couldn't be any more different from Stu. And we meet the insufferable Jess, who is mocked by both Franny and our author, who continually refers to the immaculate shirt and his posturing as a poet. It's easy to hate him, and so easily fall in love with Franny, who drops the bomb about being pregnant and begins to blather on about the quality of Dairy Queen ice cream, while seemingly insignificant. This is probably the most important key to establishing a thematic connection to the larger Stephen King universe. While it might appear as though she's simply talking about ice cream, if you look closer, it's a lot deeper. Okay? First, notice how they're at a Dairy Queen. 
and not, um, let's say, a Friendly's or uh, some other or a made-up ice cream joint. I don't know. The fact that it's Dairy Queen is incredibly important. I mean, just look at the name, Dairy. While it might appear to be referring to the milk product of the ice cream itself, it's a homophone referring to the town of Dairy, the setting of what many argue is King's greatest work, It. In the end of It, it was revealed that the spider wasn't just an it, but a she, which makes it a queen of her kind. What King isn't doing here is imbuing a sense of danger with Franny's pregnancy. By establishing her pregnancy with the reference to it, King is drawing a clear line between the spider's pregnancy and her own. The comparison is meant to cause deep unease with the reader and allows the pregnancy to serve as a harbinger of doom to hang over the events yet to come. When looking at Dairy and Queen together, in context of the product, you quickly realize that it's frozen milk. If milk is a symbol of life, then the fact that they eat at Dairy Queen speaks to both the symbolic freezing of their relationship that had conceived the child, as well as to continue to promote the sense of dread as the reader is instilled with the image of a frozen fetus, which the child will remain for throughout the duration of the novel. Lastly, and most important to the larger Stephen King universe, dairy connotes milk, which is white. Combine that with queen, and you immediately think of king. In the works of Stephen King, we eventually meet a king who is defined by a color, specifically red, whose features are marked by a beard whose color, you guessed it, is white. That character, of course, is the Crimson King. And we all know that every king is born of a queen. That's right, everyone. Franny Goldsmith eating at Dairy Queen is confirmation that she is the definitive mother of the Crimson King. Too much? Sorry, guys. The English major in me sometimes gets a little carried away. Anyway, you can't help but love Franny right away. King does such a good job at skewering Jess for his inability to handle even the responsibility of talking about the situation. Again, remember that until this point, King had written a tale of high schoolers in a small town Maine, a vampire outbreak in small town Maine, and three characters trapped in a haunted hotel. The settings and the conflicts set within the settings are limited. In The Stand, he's playing on a much larger scale. We leave off the previous chapter in Texas and jump to Agunquit, Maine. Maybe more so than any other novel, his setting descriptions are off the hook. You can feel the dry, baking heat of the Texas summer transition to this sea-sprayed coastal vacation town. Chapter 3. We return to Arnett, where King revisits the characters established in the earlier chapter. Whereas the previous chapter with Franny was designed to start to introduce us to Franny's life and more importantly her dilemma of being pregnant on the eve of the apocalypse, King begins to build the unease with the mysterious death of Charles Campion when Hap's state trooper cousin tips him off about a possible quarantine and the growing number of Arnett citizens who've begun experiencing symptoms. The first half of the novel is drenched and paranoia from Campion's immediate fear to the suspicions of the terrifying military takeover of the media. And that paranoia starts to spread here just as quickly and dangerously as the superflu itself. 
chapter 4. We open up to the larger world here, one of the government and, and the military, and our entryway to this is General Starkey. We are given the dangerous scope of the superflu with its 99.4% mortality rate. And here we realize that the stand provides an apocalypse whose every aspect is covered. Nowadays, in zombie apocalypse, we rarely get the nuanced examination of the breakdown of an entire system. Usually, as seen in The Walking Dead, we get that, that small ground view. And that makes sense. I mean, that keeps the story and the apocalypse personal. King presents a look at the apocalypse that's more in line with what Max Brooks will later do with World War Z, which I describe as the apocalypse meets the wire. Now, we've already met two of our main characters and the soldier who has exposed uh, the flu to the world. With Starkey, we see the encroaching apocalypse from a great height. With Starkey, our character's worst fears are confirmed. Chapter 5. Chapter 5... We meet Larry, or more specifically, um, we are given a 10-page backstory of the history of his one hit, Baby Can You Dig Your Man, and his journey back to New York. And this is where King's supporters and King critics are both right, because he lets loose the little details that, if you're a fan, makes such a clearer picture, and if you're a critic, takes up space on a page. I mean, I mean, do we really need to know that Larry went into the recording studio with three of the Tattered Remnants, Barry Grieg, Al Spellman, and Johnny McCall, along with Neil Goodman and Wayne Stuckey, two musicians with whom he'd worked before? Probably not, but it does simulate the life of Larry Underwood in rich detail. Now, could Larry have been just a struggling musician rather than a musician about to make it? He could have. But King's choice is so specific, it speaks to missed opportunities in life, or what appear to be missed opportunities anyway. I mean, when you look at it, the superflu took away his chance at a life of addiction and possible overdose, if his time in California was any indication. What it gave him was a chance to reunite with his mother, find his best self, discover a wife, son, family, and become a well-respected leader of his community. It's a novel populated by dozens of characters, and some may take up more story time than Larry, but I'm going to make the argument that Larry is really our protagonist. It's his journey that we witness across the landscape of the apocalypse and the rise of the new world. Within his first introduction, King continues to mention the hard streak somewhere in him, one that exists, but one he's unable to use, at first anyway. What better character to usher in the end of the world and be our eyes through the post-apocalyptic America than Larry, a character who is the personification of such a specific type of American dream, the struggling musician trying to make it in California. Chapter 6. We meet a page-stealing character with Franny's father, a man who has all the characteristics of a father and a grandfather rolled into one. There's such a tenderness between these two, it makes the inevitable death of her father a true tragedy. As much as King makes us love her father, he equally does the same on the opposite end with how he makes us fear her mother. And the coming conflict with Franny having to tell her mother about the pregnancy is just as tense as any superflu. Chapter 7 There are moments of horror in this novel that 
have seared into my mind for years. Larry's journey through the Lunkin Tunnel. Flag using his teeth when the judge is shot. But this is one that to me is just as horrifying and has nothing to do with dead bodies or supernatural devil men. When Vic wakes up to discover himself tied down in a bed with tubes stuck in him and doctors watching him behind a glass window, that is just as, if not more so, terrifying to me. And then we turn our attention back to Stu. We see his ability to overcome the virus. And then when he finally meets Dr. Denninger, it's two aspects of Americana clashing up against each other. It's the blue collar worker versus the system. Chapter 9. We're introduced to who, for the longest time, was my favorite Stephen King character. Nick Andros. It was very clever of King to introduce a handicap in the form of a character being deaf. You know, we, we get to see the struggles of all types of people in the end of the world. And with Nick, when we're introduced to him before the world has ended with a brutal beatdown by rednecks, it really raises the stakes for the uncertainty of his survival in the aftermath of Captain Trips. Chapters 10 and 11. These chapters focus on Larry, beginning with his nightmarish one-night stand to a brutally honest conversation with his mother, who... I was about to say lets him have it, but it's not it exactly. Um, the way Alice tells Larry about his faults is... It's like a guilty release. Um, and it's devastating. Uh, and it comes on page 93 of the paperback edition I think you came home because you couldn't think where else to go you didn't know who else would take you in I never said a mean word about any I'm sorry I never said a mean word about you to anyone else Larry not even to my own sister but since you pushed me to it I'll tell you exactly what I think of you I think you're a taker you've always been one it's like God left some part of you out when he built you inside of me you're not bad that's not what I mean. Some of the places we have to live after your father died, you would have gone bad if there was bad in you, God knows. I think the worst thing I ever caught you doing was writing a nasty word in the downstairs hall of that place on Carstairs Avenue in Queens. The worst part, Larry, is you mean well. Sometimes I think it would be almost a mercy if you were broke worse. As it is, you seem to know what's wrong, but not how to fix it. And I don't know how either. I tried every way I knew when you were small, writing that word on your forehead. That was only one of them. And by then I was getting desperate, where I never would have done such a mean thing to you. You're a taker, that's all. You come home to me because you knew I had to give. Not to everyone, but to you. So, I, it's just so honest, you know what I mean? And who wants to hear that from their mother? I mean, it's, it's brutal. And it's going to inform us of, of the struggle and the journey that Larry is going to go through. Chapter 12. King spends five pages detailing Franny's relationship with her mother's parlor. The room a metaphor for her mother herself. A place where time can stand still and everything can be ordered and controlled. The fact that five pages is dedicated to this room places it firmly in Franny's shoes. As time has stopped after telling her mother the news about her pregnancy. It's just as bad as you expect it, um, and Peter's arrival is one of the most heroic moments um, of the novel. 
you know, the entire chapter serves as a thumbnail for the, th the larger themes of the book of finding life after death, of trouble seeing life when you're surrounding yourself with death. Chapter 13. Because Denninger couldn't provide any information to Stu, we meet Dietz, who's just a little higher up on the ladder, and after establishing his dominance, Stu has the first of many dreams of cornfields and the man with red eyes and no face. In Chapter 16, we meet Lloyd and Polk and their low quality. Now, there's not much to say, you know, other than King constantly switches gears from one genre piece to the next, plucking characters and archetypes from different types of stories before slamming them all together later in the novel. And thinking about Lloyd, I'd, I'd have to say that there's really not much to this character. I, I understand that in the long run, it's good to have a human face on the inside of Las Vegas community and to see Flag through one of his men's eyes, but... After Flag springed Lloyd out of prison, we don't see him for hundreds and hundreds of pages. And yeah, the backstory helps, but I think this is an example where we could have gotten a few paragraphs explaining his relationship with Flag after the fact. Through Lloyd's story, King is able to explore cannibalism and the horrors of someone that will have to, you know, go through some dark decisions in order to resort to it. I'd argue that cannibalism in a post-apocalyptic story is almost necessary, so I understand the inclusion, but something about the Lloyd scenes just seem extraneous. Chapter 17 is um, where we get a frightening dose of this is what could happen, so I really don't want to think about it. You know, I, this is where Starkey gives the orders to shoot and kill the reporters um and he knows that this is this is a shift um that that really signals that things are really really bad he knows it um his his next in in line know it um it's uh it's frightening to think that that could happen um and i think that that's a fear that that we all have of one day happening so the fact that it's included here really speaks to a real world fear chapter 18 i said earlier that during the first readings uh nick had been my favorite character and this chapter reminded me why you know his decency of helping out the sheriff his kindness the sheriff's wife his sense of humor you know, his internal strength to say in the small town, to be at the trial of the men who jumped him, it's all there. And such a different character that King had written before, and maybe ever since. You know, while there may be at times when Nick grows frustrated at his situation, and later at time, he, he always maintains an inner equilibrium that the other survivors don't have. In many ways, Nick is the heart of this novel. And with his inner peace, he comes across as very Buddhist in his ways. You know, even the flashback in this scene, when the other orphanage deaf-mute Rudy writes, You are this blank page, it feels very much like a Buddhist teaching. Um, chapter 19, with a phone call to California, Larry gets word of the outbreak on the West Coast and the threat of armed soldiers. We are then treated to our first Bernie Wrightson picture of Larry checking in on a sick mother. Um, now, I, I don't, I mean, I, I don't know off the top of my head, I, I'm just not sure if the Bernie Wrightson pictures, and I probably should have looked into this, but I didn't, shame on me, if the Bernie Wrightson illustrations were found in the original 1984, no, no, sorry, 1978, um, edition of the novel. Um, I am not sure of that. Um, I do know that they were in the 1990 re-release, and, 
um, when I think of The Stand, I think of these Bernie Wrightson pictures, and they are incredible. Um, there are... I can't say enough about how awesome Bernie Wrightson is, and Bernie Wrightson black and white does not get much better. So um, if you are not really familiar with Bernie Wrightson, but the name is ringing the bell, then you might have um, listened to my uh, Cycle of the Werewolf uh, episode review. Um, Bernie Wrightson was the illustrator for Cycle of the Werewolf, and to me, I consider Cycle of the Werewolf a Bernie Wrightson um, contribution, not necessarily a Stephen King one. Um, and the thing with Bernie that's great is that he has a um, uh, he will wind up having a history working with King because you know he does Cycle of the Werewolf, he does The Stand, and later on he will go on to provide illustrations for the Dark Tower Five uh, Wolves of the Kala as well. And uh, just when I think of Flag, the image that I have of Flag is the last illustration in, in the novel of Flag standing there, and you can't see his face. It's just in shadow, and such a great comic book picture with his just his smiling eyes and his big white grin. It's it's awesome. Um. Okay. Uh. So chapter twenty, the end of the world does not come in one fell swoop comes with one tragedy after the other personalized by our characters here we get the moment a child's nightmare of a terrified parent unable to deal with the fright of something they can't understand you know namely the list and the crowded ambulance that picked up franny's mother chapter 21 Stu realizes here the danger he's in uh, the things are so out of control at this point he has no value to them and he realizes that he may in fact die in there Chapter 22, General Starkey is relieved of his command and he returns to the site of Project Blue to address his obsession to pull the man's face out of the soup so the man wouldn't spend an eternity like that. You know, watching the same monitors that Starkey had done, his successor, Creighton, begins to obsess himself over the soup that had congealed to the man's eyebrows. You know, this, this um, baton passing of obsession such a Stephen King uh, little detail. It's great, you know. It's like the, the the obsession is a virus that will just pass from one person to the next, and it shows, you know, we see that Starkey has killed himself, and you know, you know, he was obsessing, and now that Creighton is obsessing, you know, you can pretty much guess if he doesn't get the flu, what what's going to happen to him. And in chapter twenty three. Here we go, everybody, ladies and gentlemen, our first official appearance of the legendary Stephen King character, the walking dude, Randall Flagg. Though technically, he may have first appeared in The Gunslinger as the Man in Black, um, which had begun had been begun by King at the age of 19. Here he first appears as his most famous alias, Randall Flagg. What's notable here is that this iteration of the character is so specifically American. It's hard to imagine him at this part of the narrative, anyway, as part of the larger Dark Tower universe. You know, his physical appearance is designed to invoke the iconography of the cowboy, a romantic ranger of the country's highways. But he's no one's dream. He's literally their nightmare, the long shadow cast by the American sun. He's the boogeyman of the American dream. And you can tell that King loves writing him, as evidenced by his incredible introduction on page 180. Randall Flagg, the Dark Man, 
strode down south on US-51, listening to the night sounds that pressed close on both sides of this narrow road that would take him sooner or later out of Idaho and into Nevada. From Nevada, he might go anywhere. From New Orleans to from Portland, Oregon to Portland, Maine, it was his country, and none knew or loved it better. He knew where the roads went, and he walked them at night. Now, an hour before dawn, he was somewhere between Grassmere and Riddle, west of Twin Falls, still north of the Duck Valley Reservation that spreads across two states, and wasn't it fine? He walked rapidly, run-down boot heels clacking against the paved surface of the road, and if car lights showed on the horizon, he faded back and back, down over the soft shoulder to the high grass where the night bugs made their homes, and the car would pass him, the driver perhaps feeling a slight chill as if he had driven through an air pocket, his sleeping wife and children stirring uneasily, as if all had been touched with a bad dream at the same instant. He walked south, south on US-51, the worn heels of his sharp-toed cowboy boots clocking on the pavement, a tall man of no age in faded peg jeans and denim jacket. His pockets were stuffed with 50 different kinds of conflicting literature, pamphlets for all seasons, rhetoric for all reasons. When this man hands you a track, you took it no matter what the subject. The dangers of atomic power plants, the role played by the international Jewish cartel in the overthrow of friendly governments, the CIA contra cocaine connection, the farm workers unions, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the blacks for militant equality, the code of the Klan. He had them all and more too. There was a button on each breast of his denim jacket. On the right, a yellow smiley face. On the left, a pig wearing a policeman's cap. The legend was written beneath in blood redders and sorry red letters which dripped to simulate blood how is your pork he moved on not slowing but alive to the night his eyes seemed almost frantic with the night's possibilities there was a boy scout knapsack on his back old and battered there was a dark hilarity in his face and perhaps in his heart too you would think and you would be right it was the face of a hatefully happy man a face that radiated a horrible, handsome warmth. A face to make water glasses shatter in the hands of tired truck stop waitresses, to make small children crash their trikes into board fences and then run wailing to their mommies with stake-shaped splinters sticking out of their knees. It was a face guaranteed to make barroom arguments over batting averages turn bloody. <coughs> I've got the Captain Trips. Ah, I got it. Sorry, everybody. But seriously, um, that is that is flag. That is awesomely flag. Chapter 24, Lloyd's in prison. There's not much else to it. I mean, like I said earlier, I, I think that Lloyd, and the scenes with Lloyd are, are, are a bit extraneous. Um, it's all leading up to that moment of cannibalism, which is interesting, but I, I just don't think it's worth the time that we spend with Lloyd. Chapter 5, we check back in with Nick, who continues to watch the slow deterioration of Shoyo. Chapter 26, you know, here we get one of those I-can-see-this-happening-in-real-life moments when the news station uh, stages a coup on the military who'd been censoring the news and now having the upper hand show footage of overcrowded hospitals and the dumping of mass bodies into the channel. It's a terrifying chapter of vignettes 
illustrating the various outlets demonstrating the end of the world and the growing madness rising from its ashes, from soldiers turning on each other to the slaughter of college students and the suppression of the media. Chapter 27. Larry meets the monster shouter, who functions as a harbinger of doom, as well as a sly wink to the audience that, yes, now that the world has ended, monsters are coming, specifically Randall Flagg. And make no mistake, it is here where it's clear that the world has ended. When you see rotting corpses in the streets, it is all over. We learn of Larry's mother's death, uh, one more faceless victim in an overcrowded hospital, and Larry mourns for the things that he's lost. King realizes that you can't have a story without a conflict, and the concept of the end of the world is not enough. Um, which is why Larry meets delicate, privileged Rita, whose inability to exist in the new world will, will uh, propel Larry through the rest of the novel, even if she doesn't last that long. We check back in with Franny, and we learn the death of her father, but more important to the story, we meet Harold, whose introduction nails the character to a T. Harold's hair was black and greasy. He was fairly tall, about 6'1", but he was carrying nearly 240 pounds. He favored cowboy boots with pointed toes, wide leather garrison belts that he was constantly hitching up because his belly was considerably bigger than his butt, and flowered shirts that billowed on him like stay sales. Frank didn't care how much he whacked off, how much weight he carried, or if he was imitating Wright Morris this week or Hubert Selby Jr., but looking at him, she always felt uncomfortable and a little disgusted, as if she sensed by low-grade tele telepathy that almost every thought Harold had was coated lightly with slime. She didn't think, even in a situation like this, that Harold could be dangerous, but he would probably be as unpleasant as always perhaps more so. I mean, he is so annoying. It is such a great what-if situation. What if the last person alive was a leering, pretentious teenager? Unfortunately for Fran, King decides to explore this scenario. Chapter 29. Checking back in with Stu, we realize that he's about to be assassinated, and King reminds us that he's no hero, just an everyman who is terrified of being murdered. He doesn't have a grand plan, only the will to live and luck on his side. His escape from the facility is a mirror image to Larry's escape through the Lincoln Tunnel, full of danger and the unknown. Chapter 31, uh, Richard Fry officially becomes Randall Flagg in a scene that reminded me of George Stark from The Dark Half. It does make me wonder, though, why, why we need this scene at all. I mean, why does Flagg need papers and a car while the world is coming apart? We uh, then move on. We spend a chapter with Lloyd and a chapter with Nick before we get back to chapter 34, in which we meet the Trash Can Man. And honestly, what an introduction. Now, whenever there's a movie or a book with a pyromaniac, that character always pales in comparison to the Trash Can Man. King has referenced Tolkien, um, and I mentioned earlier how he envisioned this as a modern-day Lord of the Rings. Uh, I mean, and here within this particular chapter, chapter 35, he just flat-out 
references Tolkien, which is, you know, an example of, you know, him wearing his reference right on his sleeve. Um, and this scene, which presents New York in which what should be very recognizable, um, it's completely alien. It's been rendered into a an almost fantasy landscape with people being hanged from lamp posts and, and wild animals just, just roaming around. I mean, the, the idea of New York is completely rendered, you know, alien in, in, in that regard. And it's by this point, uh, it's clear that the character Rita is just not going to be able to survive in this alien landscape. The fragility that she has, um, it brings out not not sympathy in Larry, but aggravation. And I can't say that I wouldn't feel the same in his position. Yet the fact that he feels guilt over it proves that, you know, I think that he has a bigger heart than he thinks he does. Still, his discovery at Rita's bloody feet is a really ugly moment for him, which results with their temporary split um, as he faces the opening of the Lincoln Tunnel. Now, in the greatest hits compilation of The Stand, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better scene than this one. It's written with such clarity, you feel the terror and oppression of the dark as if you were Larry at that moment. The entry into the tunnel is such a fantasy element, which works wonders in a familiar setting. Much in the same way he turned the familiar into the unfamiliar with the gunslinger, he does the same here with great effect. Chapter 36. If Larry has the burden of Rita, then Franny has the burden of Harold, who we revisit in a scene that brings humanity to the character and really shows his age. Just a kid, missing his family and scared for the future. King is wise to create sympathy, but remind us that he is still an unlikable character with his pretentious way of speaking and just the over-importance of being a writer. Regardless, of, of all the survivors we've met so far, Stu, Nick, Larry, Rita, and Franny, you know, Harold is the only one with a rational plan, you know, which is to head to the Center for D Disease Control in Stovington, Vermont. And this helps add to the growing complexity of the character who first appeared as incapable of surviving in the new world, but who actually may be the most capable of all of our characters so far. Chapter 37. Stu meets Glenn Bateman, which is the beginning of that formation of this novel's quartet. King even takes time to mention that their meeting felt right. And even without telling us so, it does feel right. It's unique to the story so far. Franny and Harold don't have it, Larry and Rita don't as well, but Stu and Glenn do. So with these two characters, it seems as though the cosmic forces have begun to align. You know, they discuss the sociological possibilities that will emerge from the end of the world uh, before Glenn discusses the nightmares that he has been having. Specifically, the, the nightmares about Randall Flagg. Now, what's interesting here is the description of the dream that's, um, that he's been having. So, he, uh, he, King writes, It's a man, Bateman said quietly. At least I think it's a man. He's standing on the roof of a high building, or maybe it's a cliff that he's on. Whatever it is, it's so high that it shears away into mist thousands of feet below. It's near sunset, but he's looking the other way, east. Sometimes he seems to be wearing blue jeans and a denim jacket, but more often he's in a robe with a cowl. I can never see his face, but I can see his eyes. He has red eyes. And I have a feeling that he's looking for me, 
and that sooner or later he will find me, or I will be forced to go to him, and that will be the death of me. So I try to scream, and... A cliff or a building. During previous rereads um, of the book, uh, before the conclusion of the, the Dark Tower, and minor spoiler alerts for uh, the, the final Dark Tower books, so if you haven't finished the Dark Tower books and don't even want even the minor stuff spoiled i just you can skip ahead by um you know 30 seconds to a minute so you know i during previous rereads building up to the end of the dark tower i had wondered if that building was a tower uh or possibly a dark tower um like i said i'm not going to give away the ending here but i'll say that with what i know of flag and his relationship to the the, the larger Dark Tower uh, universe, I don't think that in this dream it's supposed to mean that he's standing on top of the tower or that the real self of Randall Flagg is, stop, is stepping or standing sorry on top of the tower. Because what's great is that the, the image that uh, Glenn does have of Flagg, of him wearing a robe and a, a cloak, that is very much the flag that we see in Eyes of the Dragon. That's very much the Martin and Walter characters that we see in the Gunslinger series. So there's a lot of truth to that, to the the ultimate evil. Um, or not, he's, I'm sorry, I take that back because that's that's a big misconception with flag. I don't think that he's the ultimate evil, but the ultimate chaos agent. But that that character, that, that image of him in the robe is more true to his true self. Um... So, I mean, with this, though, it, it really does... King suggests that Flag does come from another place entirely, uh, which, as we will find out in the Dark Tower books, is certainly the case. But I don't think that it's meant to, to state that he is standing on top of the Dark Tower. Chapter 39. Uh, with Lloyd, we see probably the darkest look at the new world of a man trapped in a cage reduced to cannibalism to survive and when given the opportunity to answer the voice that breaks the prison's silence he has the gut reaction that death by starvation would be worse it's just another way that king grows and grows the character of flag the scene marks the meeting of lloyd and flag the servant and the master and while we have seen flag before in the text seeing him through another's eyes illustrates the supernatural threat of this character his mere presence is more frightening than the prospect of an electric chair. And I've never caught this before, and I'd be interested to see if it was in original editions, um, but when Flag releases Lloyd, he brandishes a stone that in his hands flips back and forth from a stone to a key. That I remember. But the thing is that I don't remember is that the stone is marked by a red center, which Lloyd thinks is an eye. Well, Stephen King fans, you might be aware that we have seen a symbol with a red eye before, one in many of the same books that Flag has been in, and that, of course, is the symbol for the Crimson King, the ultimate evil of the multiverse whose goal is to destroy the Dark Tower. So, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm i going to... It, do I think that Stephen King, when he sat down and wrote this, that he would know to incorporate this particular detail into the larger mythos? I don't think so. But regardless, this is a character that has worked for the Crimson King. Spoiler alert, everybody. So I think that it does make sense. I'm going to go with this is a pretty heavy Dark Tower connection right there. Uh, and also, Flag dances the stone across his knuckles in this scene the same way that Roland 
um, dances a bullet across his own knuckles in the pages of the Dark Tower series. It's a great scene between uh, Flag and Lloyd, and with this scene, we we really get the um, just the manic, awful glee of this character. And what it is, it's your basic uh, selling your soul story. Um, it, it, he represents the devil here coming to tempt the man who, you know, relents uh, and then gives over his soul for, in this case, freedom. Chapter 40, Nick dreams of Flag, and when rejecting Flag's temptations in a dream, he crashes to Dream Nebraska where he meets, as we do, Mother Abigail. Chapter 41, Again, the Larry scenes are apparent that King was playing uh, his version of Tolkien. Larry's newly discovered sense of adventure through camping is reminiscent of both Frodo and Bilbo on their respective journeys. It's a memorable chapter primarily due to Rita's suicide, a scene not included in the TV movie due to the fact that Rita and Nadine were combined into one character, which is too bad for the Larry character, it's too bad for the Nadine character. Chapter 42. Flag and Lloyd were the first characters to come together, the first ones of the dark side, so to speak, but when we check back with Stu, we witness the convergence of his story with Harold and Franz, and immediately, the presence of each other causes conflict, which King salivates over with lines um, like, Harold, you leave that alone, the girl said. Then she fell silent, and for a moment, they all seemed helpless to proceed further. A group of three dots, which, when connected, would form a triangle whose exact shape could not yet be foreseen. Harold is as whiny as you'd expect him to be, and Stu demonstrates his leadership abilities by taking control of the situation by treating Harold as a man, not as the boy he is. Foolishly, he promises Harold he won't make a move on Fran, which readers will know is trouble because the chapter concludes with Stu realizing that he might fall for her after all. It's a loaded gun ending that is weighed with importance because it doesn't just end the chapter, but ends the first book as well. Okay, everybody, that is all I've got for this week. Uh, we are now just over an hour, um, but next week I'm going to pick up with book two. Um, and the following week, I will conclude my analysis of The Stand, um, and on the day I, I release my part three of The Stand review, I will also um, release a bonus episode in which I examine the relationship between um, the, the Stand and the Dark Tower. Um, and also in the part three episode, I do talk um, a lot about the Dark Tower also, without having to go into the bonus episode. So uh, I just want to throw out um, all stand-related works out there, and when I'm done with that, then I will do the review of the Gary Sinise, Molly Ringwald, um, Rob Lowe, Miguel Ferrar, um, Ruby D, and Jamie Sheridan starring movie uh, that was uh, on ABC in 1994. Uh, the four-part miniseries directed by Mick Garris. So it's a, it's a heavy month um, of The Stand. So I hope that everyone enjoyed part one. I will see you here next week for part two. Um, and remember that M-O-O-N spells Stephen King Kess. Hey,